Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's show. It is our distinct pleasure to welcome Jeffrey Tucker, amongst other things. He's founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, senior economic columnist for Epic Times, author of 10 books. Liberty or a Lockdown is most one of the more recent. Thousands of articles caught my attention to, to sort of... Um, shook my attention, should we say, to talk to him about some of the things that went down that we've been learning about, talking to some of the players on this show. And uh, particularly, we're going to look at Dr. Burks's book and some of the thoughts that she had. Jeffrey Tucker is here with us, as well as your calls, and you guys, of course, on Restream. Uh, let me see if there's more I can tell you. Of course, Dr. Victory will be here with us as well, and we will. We may even have time to take calls today, so we'll see what we can do. Let's get right to it. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. And so here we go. Today, as I said, Jeffrey A. Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute uh, and senior economics columnist for Epic Times. Um, boy, there's a lot for us to talk about. So let's uh, welcome Jeffrey Tucker into the program. Such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It is our pri distinct privilege. So uh, we, you know, Dr. Victor and I were sort of on a thread with you before the uh, cameras and the mics heated up here, and we we were unloading. We were, we were, you know, we we couldn't wait to talk to you. We've had so much on our mind that that uh, what you've been commenting on is pertinent too. And I guess mm -hmm. we ought to start with uh, Dr. Burks's book and the the ex sort of extraordinary um, lack of self-reflection as she marched through what she experienced during the pandemic. Uh, and what I, and let me just frame it by saying what we have learned by talking to many of the people that were in the rooms during the decision-making of those early months, she sort of marched off by herself and was an evangelist and went around demanding that governors follow her precepts. What did you learn from the book? You say by herself, I think by that, you mean without Trump's permission without the Oval Office. With, without the, without the, without, I don't think there was a coalition. There may have been her own mind, little coalition, but what we've heard is that there were a lot of people left behind going, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it, if, if, if little or big, it's, it's not clear, but, but this much is true. She was gone rogue from the elected uh, official at the United States at that time. On whose behalf she was working, it's, it's still not clear. But uh, so, so it went like this. Uh, uh, Matthew Puttinger of the National Security Council introduced uh, Trump to Burks and said she's the, the perfect person for this role as the uh, coronavirus task force coordinator, right? And Trump said, okay, fine. Well, it came down time for the lockdowns. We're talking about like March, you know, the first week of March. Uh, she was already training to be the one to announce to Trump that it would, the lockdowns would have to come. And uh, so she was very tight with Fauci. Um, on March 12th, they talked him into these uh, travel restrictions on Europe and Australia and New Zealand. 
On March 13th, he issued the HHS order that was basically the lockdown order. Came out later. New York Times was the first to publish it two months later. Uh, the weekend of the 14th and 15th was when Burks and, and Trump had their one-on-one, right? In the presence of the son-in-law, um, anyway, and uh, uh, Kushner, and and also- Yeah, Jared, Jared Kushner. Several, yeah, Jared Kushner and several other White House officials. And it was she who basically talked Trump into going into that March 16th press conference that that basically ended the world, right? That was the the Monday uh, press conference in which Trump, whether he knew it or not, was issuing a statement that in the fine print that uh, <laughs> Brooks herself refused to read publicly and rather turned it over to Fauci to read, uh, which said all places where people gather uh, should be closed, which would include, of course, not just bars and restaurants, but churches and uh, even homes and so on. So it was the mo- probably the most draconian uh, issuance of an executive order in, in American history. In fact, hands down, that's what it was. Uh, at that press conference, she was reluctant to read it because a reporter actually raised his hand and said, are you saying that all these things should close? And Trump said, well, we're not saying that yet. And, and at that moment, uh, uh, you know, Fauci interrupts, motions to Burks, Winks at her, says, now's the time. She gets up to the microphone, changes the subject. Fauci realizes she's not going to do the thing, which is to announce the lockdowns. That's what they're waiting for. Fauci then interrupts her. She gets like this nervous girl uh, routine, says, well, he's my mentor. I have to let him talk. Fauci does the job. He gets up and says, you need to read the fine print on page two of the PDF. The reporters are there, turn it over. They can't see it because it takes like a magnifying glass. That's where it says, all places where people congregate should be closed, according to the CDC. Trump, meanwhile, is not paying attention. He's looking out at the audience. Somebody catches his attention, and he does his little jazzy hands thing, waves at them, you know, like a politician does. Gets back up to the microphone, rolls his eyes, and takes the next question. That was the end of the world. That was it. And it was Burks that was tasked with doing it. Now, soon after that, after the first two weeks to flatten the curve, um, uh, she was trying to figure out how they're going to get an additional two weeks. In her book, she says it was always a ruse. It was never supposed to be two weeks. It was supposed to be much longer. That's all they thought they could get out of Trump. But in one occasion, after the, you know, nearing the end of the two-week period, Trump announces to the, and you remember this, Dr. Drew, Trump announces to the nation, we're going to open up everything by Easter. Remember that? I do remember so that. If you look yeah, if you look at the dating of it, that was long past the two weeks. Burks took that information and said, aha, he's open. He's open to an extension. Mm. So mm-hmm. the American people heard that as like, oh, maybe we can go to church finally. You know, forget the First Amendment. Maybe we can go yeah. to church. Uh, and they saw that as a heroic action. Trump wants to open up the economy again. Rethink this. What actually happened is that that was past the two weeks, and that was a signal to to Burks and Fauci, especially to Burks, that they had some latitude and that Trump is open to an extension. So that's when they went to him and said, "Listen, uh, Mr. President, we've gained so much in these two weeks of lockdowns. This has just been great. We've been able to, you know, uh, uh, manage the hospitals, get some more supplies in, get the ventilators to people who need them, and so on. We've been able to restrain the spread. If you open up now, it'll lead to disaster and you'll be the fault of millions dead. So 
instead of asking for two weeks, what she was plan which was what she was planning to do, she changed her mind and said, let's ask for 30 days. You see, that's how and, like, and I, in, in that. And I remember in that, in the book, she was also saying that, how do I coerce this dude? How do I, not how do I present the data and ask for a decision from the elected official? It was how do I coerce and manipulate to get this done? As though, again, thus saith the Lord what dropped from her lips. And uh, that that's the part that I find deeply disturbing. And my recollection is what happened from there was Trump said open by Easter, that's when she went to the governors, and that's when my state locked so, down completely and never opened up again. Right. It was during that 30-day uh, window, right? So now she's flying around. Yeah. But, um, but finally, Trump got sick of, her, sick of her. After he gave her that second approval, he wouldn't speak to her again. She was very hurt by this. Went to uh, Pence and said, Trump's not speaking to me. What should I do? I don't know what to do. It was Pence that said, Stick with the program. Stick with the program. You need to keep going. You need to keep going. So he gave her protection while mm. uh, Trump refused to meet with her anymore. And he stopped going to the coronavirus task force meetings entirely and stopped holding uh, the press conferences. You remember after the bleach disaster? Um, he stopped mm -hmm. holding the press conferences. Well, she went full rogue with the backing of whom? I don't yeah. know. But she went from state to state to state to state, even going to Texas and persuading Texas of a mask mandate. And, you know, that's when the SWAT teams were going in to arrest people for drinking beers in rural bars and so on. And so the only governor who absolutely refused to meet with her was um, Christy Noem of South Dakota. So God bless her. Just banned her from the state completely. So, <laughs> But otherwise, it was she who prolonged the lockdowns. Well, she and the Congress that are voting trillions of dollars in and, and subsidies and so on. But, but Dr. Ruth, from that point on, I think it's the best way to think of it is that Trump was no longer president. He was a marionette at that point. And the, uh, Dr. Birx was, in fact, making all the decisions with Robert Cadillac and many other people uh, 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 having her back. A very strange time in American history. And then, of course, fast forward into the summer, we had the Black Lives Matter protests and that sort of thing. And then re-lockdown all the way to the election and then the release of the vaccine following the election. So that's a short history. Now, but Burks was our dictator, and she was later caught, as you recall, having gone to see her her family and gathered with her many homes in the Northeast and, yeah, and defying yeah. uh, travel restrictions. Now, it, it it seemed to me that let me think what I was uh, going to bring up here. The um, well, the state the state to state part of it was the sort of egregious part. That's where the that's where the sustained lockdowns were carried out. I guess what I was going to say was the one thing I've learned during this as it pertains to Dr. Burks and this being the de facto ruler of the land or determining policy for the land. My understanding is the way our public health system is sort of set up in the eyes of the constitution, there's room for that, which I had no idea. So it's not as though they were, in, in other words, there, there's, we can argue about whether it really specifies that or not, but my understanding or what I've come to surprisingly learn is that public health officials in an emergency are given fiat authority. They assumed it. It's not clear whether they're actually given it. Uh, the Public Health Service Act of 1944 allows for a quarantine power under certain circumstances, mostly having to do with uh, 
uh, importation of, of animals that are infected or plants or that sort of thing. It was, it's rarely been invoked. Uh, but they took that and ran with it, especially the sanitation uh, portion of that 1944 Public Health Service Act. And they used that as an excuse, as, you know, to make us wear masks and that sort of thing. But for the most part, uh, it was a strange combination because, as you know, lockdowns were never part of the pandemic plans. Right. They never were no. with, from the right. World Health Organization or the CDC or anyone else. But they had uh, an unwarranted amount of discretionary power and they just ran with it to do things uh, that nobody ever uh, thought possible. I mean, I knew it was could happen. I never believed it would happen. But they they used every latitude in law. And of course, the courts couldn't meet because they were social distancing and, and shut down. So we couldn't actually, and they weren't functioning. Nothing was functioning. The Bill of Rights was effectively abolished for a very long time and schools were shut down, it was outrageous. The hospitals were shut down, parking lots were empty. And this is a very grim uh, period. And this is also a period uh, too, in which you couldn't freely travel uh, from state to state because there were, quarantine orders on all sides of the borders. You remember this, right? I mean, like you had to quarantine yep. two weeks before you could uh, leave the state, uh, you know. And uh, uh, the dentistry was basically abolished for the better part of six weeks during that, during that period. Um, and as crazy you say, times never, con yeah, crazy times and never before contemplated in the history of medicine, save maybe some 11th century Venetian outbreak of plague where things went completely backwards by, by invoking this sort of thing. It was 12th century. Um, but, but the fact is that the email threads now that are available uh, thanks to all the FOIA applications suggest that FOIA and Burke sent a team to China. That team was completely hoodwinked by the Chinese uh, counterparts, and they brought that home, and that's what convinced Burks and and uh, Fauci to pursue this this new, never before thought of technique that was strictly speaking a political maneuver by the CCP. The junket to China from February what was it, fourteenth to about twenty sixth, maybe it was fifteenth to twenty sixth, is one of the least understood aspects of this entire thing, where Fauci sent his deputy assistant. Uh, together with a team from the World Health Organization to go on a sort of Potemkin village tour of China where uh, CCP showed them how well they did in controlling the virus. And the World Health Organization issued a report on February 26th um, to all nations of the world saying China knows how to do with the coronavirus. Everybody should copy this exact approach. And, and everybody agreed. You know, the Fauci's deputy assistant, um, agreed with that. All the emails agreed with that. They sent it out to the world. I asked a person who really know uh, whether and to what extent the lockdowns would have ever happened without that report. And he said, there's no way. That was the thing that decided everything. And if you look at all the Fauci correspondence uh, between about the 26th and the 29th, he changed his mind about lockdowns. You remember that New England Journal of Medicine uh, article that he wrote came out February 28th, but he had written that two weeks earlier. That was the one that said, this is going to be a bad, bad flu year. Don't worry about it. It's not so bad. You remember mm -hmm. that one? Right. He made a decimal yes. point yes. error, error and he confused IFR and CFR in that, in that paper. But nonetheless, it came out on the 28th. Well, it turns out he had already changed his mind about lockdowns by that time, because on February 26th, he wrote 
the uh, 1980s sort of influencer uh, actress named Morgan Fairchild. Uh, this, as far as I know, this is the first time Fauci ever raised the prospect of, of lockdowns, wrote her a private email and said, alert your followers that lockdowns are coming. Do you remember that? And so Morgan, Morgan Fairchild. I don't remember that. Said, yeah. I don't remember that. She was the very first American. Yeah, Morgan Fairchild. Am I I saying that? Yeah, she's that Vava Vuma actress from Dallas in the 80s or something like that. Yes, yes, I remember. They're from uh, Falcon Crest, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Falcon Crest. And she played uh, Dottie on uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure in the latter half. Anyway, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Oh, my God, that's true. And so Fauci knew her and said, well, alert your followers that lockdowns are coming. So that was on February uh, 26th. On this 27th, Donald G. McNeil uh, was on the uh, podcast of the New York Times, which at those days went out to two or three million people and whipped, whipped up disease panic. He came into the studio spraying uh, hydrogen peroxide everywhere and saying that one in six of your friends is going to die you know, from this virus, which reminds him, he says, of the 1918 p- flu pandemic is going to be much worse. And that day, I knew that everything was going to go terrible. You mentioned the 11th century Venice, I think you said. Um, uh, well, yeah. on the twenty eighth of 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 November of uh, February twenty twenty, Donald G. McNeil wrote an article for the New York Times op ed page called "To Take on the Coronavirus: Go Medieval on It." So that's, that's exactly what we did, right? He said, "Yeah." Anyway, exactly. Um, it was a grim. Those were grim days. That same day, the New York Times ran an op ed by, of all people. Uh, Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance, which we know now, yep. was the recipient of a, of a pass-through grant to the Wuhan lab from which many people think this virus emanated as a, as a lab leak. So there you go. Yep. And so from the 28th, yep. that, was the end, that was the end of the world. That was when uh, Fauci decided lockdowns were the way to go. They had fully two weeks to convince Trump. Burks was tasked with doing the dirty work. And she did it, and she accomplished it, and uh, then they were done with her, and she, her head is on a platter, and I don't know where she is now. But her book is a fascinating one. Sometimes I think I'm the first one to have read it because uh, she went to work with, <laughs> with Biden. Out. I thought for a while, but she's uh, no, not I thought she now. was. Wor- she now. moved over to his camp during the. Not now. No, no but he did. No, she did she, after that. Um. Yeah. She was. She was fired in November. Maybe she worked for Biden for a little while. Or she resigned in November. I mean, that's what I read. Being, yeah, being caught violating quarantine, that sort of thing. But now I think she works as a mm-hmm. consultant for some air ventilation company or something like that. That's right. But her book is a, <laughs> yeah. is a, is a, yeah, her book is a fascinating study. It's called uh, Silent Spread, I think is the name of it, right? And it's all hinges on this idea that there was a long latency period to the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, which turns out not to be true. Um, SARS-CoV-2 behaved very much like a, a textbook respiratory virus, a coronavirus. There are four. This is the fifth one as a relatively conventional latency period. But see, the thing is, Burks was speculating they had a long latency period as a way of kind of gaming the normal trade-off you would have between severity and prevalence, right? And so, In other words, a way to get everybody whipped up in a, in a, in a state of fear. Now, uh, what's interesting about this is like, if you want to think about a virus that has a long latency period that's also lethal, what would you think of? You know, right? AIDS, AIDS, HIV, right? And that is her entire history of infectious yeah. disease, entirely formed yeah. through that AIDS 
uh, period, which had this unusually long latency period. So that was the whole model she brought to pandemic control for what turns out to be just quite a normal respiratory virus, right? So it was yeah, it was a respiratory the virus that, model. Yeah, that will do what it does regardless of lockdowns. It will just respiratory viruses just do what they do. Uh, and the it's interesting to me having been there responding to Dr. Fauci and his team during the HIV pandemic. He was he was a hero to me at the time. And they were, I'm, I'm looking back now, you've shined a light on something for me that's another liability of having been so, I think, successful during that epidemic, but they used some of the techniques that they were using with coronavirus, which was fear, do you remember? It's equal opportunity, everybody's gonna get this thing. High school students, you gotta wear a condom because you're gonna get it. I was part of the chorus, I was there. Uh, we, we were consciously using fear. Now. It was fear without social media, without all the incredible numbers of outlets and the way things mob today. There was fear when you had four networks and that's the only place you could sort of put your information and maybe out on radio. And it was a very different technique than in today's media landscape, number one. Of course, the polarization just added another layer to that as well. So they were using fear, number one. Number two, the issue of the latency. They were very familiar with that and relied heavily on it. Uh, and again, the 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 simplicity of the messaging and the repetition of these simplistic messages made sense when there were three networks, but now they just makes looks like distortion and lies because people start to get their own information. They start to get multiple sources. They start to realize that this they must not think I can handle the truth, which is indeed what was in their minds, I think, at the time. Also, the idea of disease avoidance uh, and suppression. Mm. Uh, that's another thing that they had in common. So if it's AIDS, you really don't want to get AIDS. And <laughs> we didn't work. We didn't rely on herd immunity yeah. for AIDS, right? No, <laughs> so but you, to your point, on... we never, but we never taught, we never did public education about how to survive AIDS. Like there were so much things they, so many things they could have done to help people survive coronavirus, including something simple like your state has bought monoclonal, your government has bought monoclonal antibodies. They're available everywhere. Get it from your doctor. Let, you know what that is? Ask your doctor. Nothing about improving the outcomes. That's right. Uh, and another factor that that uh, has in common with the with the age experience was the eventual uh, realization that prophylactics were the best way of avoiding infection. So that's what the mask was. MPIs were the mask, prophylactics. Right. Or, yeah. So everything is an analogy right. there. Also, I'll mention something else: track and trace. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, track yep. and trace was used with actually not a lot of success, but some plausibility at least in the case of AIDS. So they transferred yep. that over to the SARS-CoV thing. A common respiratory virus that everybody was gonna get, they were gonna use track and trace. Do you know that I just, I, I was just in Mexico. To get back into the United States, I had to report my whereabouts for the track and trace regime. This, is, this was last week, this is still going on. Oh, so I go from Mexico yeah. City to Connecticut and I come back with COVID, they're gonna, they're gonna track where and, and do what? I mean, we're still playing these yeah. games. And, it, and again, it's, it's oh. all from the AIDS experience. And it was all so poorly executed. I, I had an alpha or a delta, I had a bad COVID early on. And when, when I was sick, I reported it and the public health, <laughs> I got a call from public health and they went, uh, anyone else exposed? I said, well, in my, there's a few in my household. He goes, 
Yeah, we'll let them know. Let, the, let those guys know that they're probably exposed. Anyway, so see you later. I mean, it was just like there was no formal tracking nor testing, no nothing. Just say, let them know they're probably going to get it. Thanks. Uh, I was like, what? And it was, by the way, it was like a 19-year-old kid from the public local public health department. It was the weirdest thing ever. I'll, I won't forget that as part of this either. But let me do something. Let me take a little break here. And they do what? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah do what? Exactly. Uh, and then, and then, and then what, he'll get the same. What you know? Well, he'll get the same call. He'll get the same call from the 19-year-old going, have you had any kind of contact with anybody? Yeah, maybe somebody at the grocery store. Well, all right, let them know. And so, so, so um, all right, we're going to take a little break. We're going to do some business here, and we're going to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in to continue with uh, Jeffrey A. Tucker. Again, it's brownstone.org. We can find uh, Jeffrey's work and uh, a lot of interesting stuff. His review of Dr. Burks's book is epic, and I suggest you read it. We'll be right back. Genucel has so many products that Susan and I love. Their XV Moisturizer locks in moisture, making dry spots a thing of the past, which is especially great with the colder weather, of course. And with the immediate effects, too, you can see these results in as little as 12 hours. Guaranteed or your money back. Susan loves Genucel's Vitamin C Serum, the new deep correcting serum with lactic acid that hydrates your skin and reduces fine lines while preventing future wrinkles from forming. Don't believe me? Listen to Susan. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Take advantage of this New Year's promotion by going to GenuCell.com and getting 60% off now with a complimentary gift set when you subscribe to my favorite package at GenuCell.com Drew. All orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the season. Use code DREW at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That is genucel.com slash DREW, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. My guest is Philip Patrick. He is a precious metal specialist, trains at University of Redlands. He has spent years as a wealth manager at Citigroup, and his current position is with Birch Gold Group. So gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil, uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has, has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble. These times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different the solution needs to be different as well so i encourage everyone to get informed and we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners just a reminder i am not a financial advisor and i do not give out financial advice nor investing advice birch gold has an a plus rating with the better business bureau countless five-star reviews and thousands of satisfied customers check them out now visit birchgold.com drew and secure your future with gold do it now some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. 
There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Indeed it has been, yet uh, we've been sort of charting our way through this uncharted territory for quite some time here. Dr. Victory, welcome back. We're Jeffrey Tucker still with us. Uh, Susan had something to ask Caleb across the mic here before we uh, proceed. I guess there's a technical I issue, answered. Susan. I, it's I all working. I don't see any comments comments from Facebook, but if you're out there, we want your comments. Okay, fair enough. Kelly, have at Terrific. Thanks so much for joining us. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. And I know that you and you and Drew have covered quite a bit of it already, but I want to stick for a few more minutes, if you if you will, with um, this book by Deborah Burks uh, and really her involvement in this whole debacle. And that's what it was. She is responsible for a lot of things, not the least of which is destroying my confidence in scarves for women. I have a very nice Hermes scarf collection <laughs> that I just can't bear to, to don. And it's, it's just laying, fall, it's laying fallow in my closet right now. And it, it, I, I can't bear uh, to bring it out. In any uh, event, um, I always thought prior to this book and, and frankly to this conversation with you that she was somewhat of a talking head. I don't think that she actually made any decisions of her own. I thought she was sort of the mouthpiece that stood up and regurgitated whatever Anthony Fauci told her to say, is that, is that not sure? I get the idea that, that that's not really correct. Well, I don't know. I think she got religion at some point. Uh, she was a, a radical suppressionist and a, and a, a mm -hmm. serious lockdowner. She really wanted to make sure that nobody would ever get COVID. And the only way she could think to do that was by enforcing lockdowns and masks and travel restrictions. There was no uh, kind of draconian anything that was enough as far as she was concerned. She, she thought she was on the side of the angels. And she just flew around the country mm -hmm. and, and passionately uh, went from governor to governor, from public health office uh, uh, to argue for this. And I don't, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't think it was Fauci so much that was giving her the marching orders. I think she was, she was acting not on her own, but, but somehow she, she believed in what she was doing. Um, and, and she brags about it in the book, you know, the, the really absolutely. there's two or three moments in the book where she says, so you have to think back to those days, the initial idea was to reduce the number of cases, that, right? So flatten the curve, Matt. Uh, slow the, the, the cases. More they slow can, them. Slow them, and all the way to zero if you could. I mean, that, they convinced Trump that if, mm -hmm. in two weeks he could right. get rid of coronavirus entirely, right? Uh, so, so that minimalizing or minimizing strategy was always her way of thinking. And so everything she mm -hmm. could do to minimize uh, the spread was just for her, just like a dogma was something you would just uh, do. And but in order to inspire people of the need to lock down more, to mask more, to restrict more, to get rid of indoor gatherings and so on, and, and I can't keep schools closed and everything else, she wanted to um, uh, maximize the amount of fear, which came with right. a sort of exaggerating uh, the, the, the danger of the, the virus to everybody, which in those days it was easy to do because if you had uh, PCR testing that was you know, running at a very high cycle rate, rate you, could, you could generate what they called a case, right? So sure. we, we've had a huge, 
huge confusion all over 2020 and 2021, even now, between infections and cases, a long-established distinction in infectious disease epidemiology that we just threw out the window. So suddenly every PCR-positive case was, for her, a a danger, like this person's going to die kind of thing. So so it was left to her to uh, constantly keep everybody whipped up in a state of fear. So now you have the, the, the Trump administration of appointees, right? Trump himself and all of his closest advisors and all their appointees trying to claim that because of uh, Trump's actions, things were getting better. You had Burks, on the other hand, trying to prolong the panic as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So every week, and she t- discusses this in her book and brags about it, Every week on Monday morning, they would distribute, the Coronavirus Task Force would distribute a report to all the public health officials in the country. And um, all the final data came in on Friday. She would wait till Sunday night, manipulate the data, change the data, uh, uh, rearrange the data, bury uh, the news she didn't want people to hear, uh, elevate the data that she did want them to hear, and send it out for approval Sunday night where she knew everybody was at the bars drinking. She did this for several months straight, and she brags about it in the book. She openly manipulated and and doctored those reports that went out to the states to create panic so the states would continue to lock down everywhere and still uh, maintain their disease panic and frenzy. She brags about it several times in the book. She calls it like uh, subterfuge, subversion, I think is her word. Right, right. She brags about it. Yes. Amazing. No. No, it it is stunning. In reading the book, there there's an element of hubris um, where she really, with absolute, um, it, it just has no no uh, d- sort of concern for the fact that she did this, that she obfuscates the data, manipulates the data. And frankly, you know, there's a word for it when you are supposedly working at the behest of the president of the United States and you go out of your way to mislead him. And she acknowledges that, as you said, she acknowledges that when it came to the lockdown, that if they told she knew if they told President Trump anything more than two weeks, that because he and she even says this because of his business acumen, he would understand what a critical impact that would have on the economy and he would never go for it. So she essentially says, so we lied to him uh, mm-hmm. and told him two weeks when we knew that wasn't the case. It's really r- remarkable. Um, and, and you may be correct that she is actually a zealot because she doesn't seem to have she, any yeah. concern about so that. She, well, she was sure that lockdown is the way and she had no exit strategy. None of these people did, actually. I mean, you know, right. I remember in April, um, I, I remember I got a call from a, I don't know if you know a guy named Rajiv Venkalia, I think is his name. And he was Gates Foundation virus head. And uh, uh, his history traces back to the Bush administration, 2005, 2006. He's the one who claims to have invented uh, pandemic planning in the form of lockdowns. <clears throat> he called me in, in, mm. in, in April and told me to shut up. I need to stop writing against the lockdowns because I was one of you know, there weren't many of us really, but I was writing against the lockdown and trying to trying to say this is a disaster. It's going to create all sorts of unemployment and despair. It's going to create a public health crisis. People are going to turn to substance right. abuse. It's going to be a disaster, and it's not going to get rid of the virus. Right? That's what I was saying. And he right. called me up and said, "You really need to stop writing this stuff." And I said, "Well, I'm not going to do that." However, let me ask you a question: What if the lockdowns work? Where does the virus go? 
where do you, where does this virus right. go? I mean, does it, does it just get scared of the politicians, scared of our social distancing <laughs> and go, well, I guess humanity didn't really like me. I better just go away now. I mean, what virus has ever done that? Right. Of this sort. What well, virus but they had a, of this sort they had a they had a they had a vaccine the fantasy, the vaccine uberalis. So it went from safety uberalis to vaccine uberalis. Mm -hmm. And if the vaccine was going to rescue us, all we had to do was get there. You get there with as few fatalities as possible. But and, I think I, I get think it. The issue really... I, I, it was wrong. What's well, that? Well, Dr. I think Drew, the, my, my... Dr. Drew, ahead, you know Jeffrey. something that I, I, I didn't know that at the time, right? I mean, we're talking about April, maybe it was May of 2020. Yeah. I, you know, I had heard about this idea that they're going to come up with a vaccine, but I, you know, I might, I'm very old fashioned. I thought they would want to test it and that sort of thing. <laughs> How dare you? But, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> don't crazy. Don't, don't be crazy. I mean, yeah. No. But uh, so I figured it was going to be like five years off at the very minimum. So when the guy told me on the phone, he, I said, where does the vaccine, where does the virus, virus go? He said, well, we're going to reduce the R naught. You're mixing up cars and effect, How? dude. You can't, you don't, yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's say we all hide under our sofas and the R naught goes down and down. I mean, once we come out from under our sofas, the R naught's going to go up. I mean, what are you talking about? And he said, well, and it took a long time. He finally said, yeah, we're going to vaccinate our way out of this pandemic. And at that uh, point, well, see, you're, you're smarter than I, you're smarter than I am. You knew. I didn't. I nearly dropped the phone. I said, you are going to vaccinate your way out of this pandemic? What, are we going to stay locked down for five years? Are you right. out of your mind? I right. couldn't believe it. He said, no, I think it's going to be a lot sooner than that. Well, I just, I, at that moment, I thought I had heard everything. I just I couldn't believe it, that they really thought that we we're going to stay locked down until we get a safe and effective vaccine. But, but see, I, mean, I think this is where the really it, the, the question really in my mind, Jeffrey, is whether or not they actually believed that any of these things worked. For example, if you take masking, we've known this isn't something that we discovered during COVID. We've known for decades that masks do nothing appreciable to stop the spread of respiratory viruses. Social distancing is a made up construct, doesn't exist in public health. Uh, for controlling viruses. And there isn't anybody out there who could have passed virology 101 without knowing, for example, that there isn't a long latency period for respiratory viruses. I don't think that Deborah Burks could have possibly, either that or she's the dumbest person in her medical school class because I, I, I think, no, guys, I having the, lived through the, the opioid pandemic, the I, the, but, when but I Drew, saw how people deluded themselves about pain spread. and opiates, when, when I was being demanded to give opiates to my heroin addicts in withdrawal because they didn't have a happy face for their pain assessment, that was insane. Right. And these people believed it and they were evangelists. They were evangelical. Once scientists or physicians develop a religious orientation to their point of view, run everybody that's how untold harm gets done. Yeah. It's the evangelical that then gets a hold of the, the lay leaders, the public health, well, the governors, the press, and now it's on. And then they and then those do the bidding of punishing any of the naysayers, any of the dissenting opinions. They don't have to, the public health doesn't have to do that anymore. The press, the academic institutions, the state societies will take care of it for them now. And that, that was the playbook for for opioids, and that is the exact 
line and verse experience we had with COVID. It's just extraordinary to me. I tell you what, I never would have believed what you just said, Dr. Drew. It's just remarkable to me that you you can see this so clearly because uh, in the early age, uh, early stages of lockdowns, I didn't believe for a second that they were. This was in the end, really about the vaccine. I thought the vaccines were a fallback position to get us out of lockdowns. I never imagined yeah. the purpose of the lockdowns was to make the vaccine. I mean that that's just right. you know, I mean that that that's just like next level uh, crazy. And certainly in the spring and summer of 20, uh, 2020, I never would have imagined such a thing. But you know what's what's fascinating to me about all of this, of course, is that in the end, the vaccine didn't perform as uh, ex- expected. So you know that leaves us in a very uh, strange uh, p- position because, uh, well, basically a complete loss of of trust and in, in a massive industry and and in public health generally speaking. So it seems to me something of a calamity. And oh, we're also left with the carnage, right? I mean, and we, I, right. there's no reason for us to go to the carnage. I mean, two years of lost mm-hmm. education from, from kids, it's substance abuse, a public health crisis, obesity through the roof, cancer screenings missed, yeah. cancer th- yeah. uh, right. through, through the rift. You know, just a, a total public demoralization, a loss of respect in government, which Henry Kissinger predicted, by the way, uh, uh, in his uh, Wall Street Journal article, I think it was like April 1st, he said, if this doesn't go well, um, uh, the loss of trust in government will be uh, world worldwide. Um, and it'll be, mm. and the world will be on fire. That's what he said. <laughs> what? I don't know what to say. It didn't, it did not go well. Um, we're a different country now than we were uh, three years ago. I mean, let's just face it. This was this was a calamity. And if what you're telling me, it was, it was all about wanting to uh, deploy some experimental technology in the form of absolutely for, for 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 what is for most people very mild uh, inconvenience. I mean, you I, I, look, COVID was bad for me, but I'm of a certain age, right? But for most people, it it it, it wasn't anything like. Um, it didn't warrant this kind of uh, this kind of uh, lockdowns, and that and that. So all this was all uh, uh, just kind of an industrial experiment. Well, let, let me let, let me no no no. Let me let me put a different blush on it because I was I was willing to. I believed that our system would improvise their way out of it and figure out therapeutics and or vaccines. I, I knew how our system works. I believe by the end of the summer, we'd have solutions. So to me, if people, you know, I didn't think the rock lockdowns were work. I didn't think they were necessary, but I thought I'm a good citizen. I'm going to follow what these leaders are doing. They're doing the best they can. They're planning for the worst case. I do believe there will be solutions, but the, the grave errors they made, now let's think about it. I hope I can tease this apart in a way that's sensible was making it seem as though the risk was equal across all age groups, okay? Now, the reality is, the reality is the vaccines, we gotta be able to hold two ideas in mind. The vaccines did help the older population. I'm, I'm convinced when the day is done, I could be wrong, that Kelly thinks I'm wrong, but when the day is done, I believe we will have helped the people over the age of certainly over 75 with the vaccines, which was the really the people at risk and the ones that we were alleging we were trying to save grandma. We were alleging that. But because we so overstated the risk to all the other population, the answer still had to be the vaccine for all ages. And now it has a risk reward ratio that is completely upside down and completely different than for a 75 year old. And now we get into real trouble and they don't 
go back and say, you know what? We overstated the risk to all the 20 and 30 year olds. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. Sit by everybody. You're going to be fine. Instead, they go, the risk is terrible. I can't stand to see another person on a ventilator. Vaccine for everybody. That's right. It was all about the va- exactly it was all right. about the vaccines without without a question. Go ahead, Jeffrey. But if you go back to uh, March eighth, Fauci's testimony before uh, the House Subcommittee on on I don't know the virus or something. I don't forget now about them. But he was very interesting because he had every opportunity to explain exactly what you just said about the the huge gradient of risk, a thousandfold difference between the young and the old. Right. We knew for sure, based on the Diamond Princess case and all the data out of China, we knew for the better part of March. We knew for the better part of a month the truth about about the gradient of of risk gradient of this. Fauci had every opportunity to say that in that testimony. He did not. You remember this? We we knew. We knew. Yes, we we knew the risk gradient of HIV early in that pandemic. And I don't think that has come from his mouth. To this day, to this day, they tried to do the same. It was everybody's going to get same it. Thing with monkeypox, they tried to do the same thing with monkeypox. Yeah, they were going down that path. I mean, they were going down that path. Yeah, but I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, it, it, I'm telling you, it, it's just criminal because in that testimony that day, because everybody's like scared, right? This was March eighth. We're already gone through oh, January. China's lockdown. Now we got travel restrictions. Get we got a whole month of February where Fauci and Farrar and the rest of these people are trying to figure out what they're going to do, what they're going to do because they're afraid of lab leak. Uh, now comes March eighth. Already Austin, Texas is canceled South by Southwest by edict of the mayor. And so now the Congress is like, uh, uh, Mr. Fauci, can you tell us what's going on? They're all white with fear. And so he starts <laughs> by saying, and, and the, 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 he waits into the Q&A. So, right, his official prepared statement is a bunch of blather. You can just throw out the trash like the rest of these government officials. But during the Q&A, somebody says, um, gee, can you tell us, like, uh, how risky do you think this is? Like, like, how bad is this going to be? And Fauci begins by saying, well, the last uh, uh, coronavirus uh, was SARS-CoV-1. And that was 2003. There were 8,000 people infected, and 775 of them are dead. <laughs> so that's a 10% fatality rate. And then he leaves it silent. Everybody's like, <gasps> With no age gradient. So goes, no age gradient. Right. No. And then he goes on to say, now, the data out of China that we're seeing today, which every year says, well, they're lying, right? They've already got 10% in their head. It's like the data out of China that we're seeing now uh, estimates at three percent, and 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 so he's inviting all the the Congress people gathered to think, oh well, that's a lie. It's probably much worse because we know China lies. Then he goes on to say, well, you know, but once you include um, uh, asymptomatic infections plus uh, minimum uh, people with minimal symptoms, okay, so what are you talking about? Asymptomatic infections? Are you sick or are you not? I mean, so we know what he's talking about, but they don't know what he's talking about. He says it could bring it down to one percent, but but if you think about the annual flu as having a mortality rate of something like zero point one percent, that still makes SARS-CoV two. 10 times worse than the annual flu. So think about it that way. And he stops. That moment, like every face in the room is white. Everybody is terrified. That was March 8th. So he was already grooming. 
the entire U.S. Congress to, to get into this panic lockdown mode. And, and as and you the say, same... in that testimony, yeah. not one word about the age gradient, not one word about the risks uh, to the elderly people. And we know what happened after that. Of course, they shoved COVID patients into the nursing homes, killing God knows how many people. But it it was, I, it was I, an outrageous It went testimony. over to press then. Th th then it bled over to the press. I, somebody came up to me. I was working in a newsroom at the time at a local television show. And one of the news directors came up to me and said, this, this is an extinction event, right? This is the extinction of humanity. I was like, you're a news person. Are you, what? Are you, I said, no, no, no such thing. Not even close. And that's what they had in their heads. So back to where we started this, Kelly, you we were talking about whether Burks believed it. I think they believed it. I think there was cognitive dissonance going, well, running amok. I think they convinced I, I, themselves of this stuff and they were going to save the world. And that was it. You're more generous than I because I will tell you it was <laughs> me clear too. to me from the it was clear to me from the very beginning. I, I mean, I said literally the second week of February, I said this is insanity. You know, this concept of wearing masks, social distancing, the talk about lockdowns, asymptomatic spread. You did. These are, I said from the very yeah. beginning, February of 2020. Yes, you did. I said this is mm -hmm. absolute insanity, people. I said you could not have passed virology 101 and you don't have any background in public health because the, the, the risk-benefit calculation is off on all of this. I said, furthermore, it was the therapeutic nihilism on top of that. We aren't going to talk about the things right. we knew by the second week of February that vitamin D deficiency was strongly connected yeah. with a poor outcome. We knew that obesity, we knew that all of these things, yet we couldn't talk about any of that. And if it truly was about public health, they would have been at least at the same time, and coincidentally, you know, hammering home on those things, but they weren't. You would, you Instead, would think it was. You would think, like I said, monoclonal you know. antibodies, all the things you can do for yourself. But, but Kelly, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave. I want to sort of lead you as the witness for a second. And uh, Jeffrey, ap apologies for the language I'm about to use. Kelly has something called the unfuck it bucket. And, and I want Kelly <laughs> to fo focus on that day. for a minute. What can we do to unfuck it? Given we're, we're all three of us are in agreement about what we're looking at here, save some nuances and stuff, but how do we unfuck it? Yeah. Just to give you a little bit more background on that, since you just got caught off guard, you know, I was talking about the that is important to have bucket number one on the data and to continue to focus on the data as we know it with regard to these vaccines. Number two is my accountability bucket. And I do think that accountability, real accountability is critical to ever healing and moving beyond this. And that's a discussion by itself for a whole day. And then my third bucket was the, you know, how do we unfuck it bucket? Because we, we, we have got, there's no time for a victory lap uh, as much as I would like to do one, given how I was treated during this thing and to run around and say, you know, the, I, I told you so. Um, there's not time for that. We have got to put every smart mind at how do we fix this? Because otherwise we are looking at a tsunami of illness, suffering and premature death. Um, so yeah. where do we go from here? How do we do that? Well, it, it takes leadership. You know, I think it, it certainly does. And you know what it also takes? It takes a little bit of honesty and a little bit of humility. A lot. Like if we could start, start there, I would be mm -hmm. so happy if we could just all yes. the people who were attacking me for th three years now and, 
and we're urging you know lockdowns and masks and and vaccine 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 mandates and and uh, school closures and everything uh, that has has just been such a disaster and and told choirs not to sing and you know right. <laughs> all these and uh, if we could just get a little humility and a, mm-hmm. and honesty just like all you have to do is maybe just send a tweet and go yeah you know i got carried away and there were a lot of victims and right. i was really wrong and it turns out a lot of things i believed uh, were not true it turns out that if i'd done a little more research even in the early days i could have known about the age mm-hmm. gradient risk i could have tailored my advice a little bit uh, better i could have had a little more compassion for my fellow human beings than i had mm-hmm. in fact mm-hmm. um i really i really just fell prey to disease panic and and a lot of my advice uh, mm-hmm. was really wrong and i'm sorry if i contributed to um harming so many people and demoralizing so many people and i'm sorry about what happened to the education of your kids i'm sorry you couldn't attend your your grandmother's funeral and i bear some responsibility for that mm-hmm. uh, we, mm-hmm. this was a terrible very tough time as a public intellectual as a doctor as a medical professional as a public health official i had responsibilities i completely failed i forgot about the working classes i didn't care about the people i was shoving in front of the viruses i forgot there were people that had to keep society running while me and my friends hid under the sofa and i recommended you do the same thing i knew the mask didn't work i recommended them anyway that was humiliating for you and i'm i'm sorry like just write right. something like that if we could get all mm-hmm. these people and we're talking about quite a lot of people to just admit that they were wrong. Right. That would begin the healing process. We need that as a country because we know that they were wrong. We know that Absol- that uh, right. Yeah. And unfortunately physicians f- physicians I hate to tell you Jeffrey are, you know, leading the charge in in having been wrong. Um my own colleagues have a lot of accounting to do. I have really said I think everybody involved in this from public health officials to politicians people in big tech, people in the mainstream media, um, everybody, every governor needs to, and every physician needs to answer three questions. What did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do about it? Because I'll tell you right now, people have got to be, to, to answer to that. And as you said, there is no forgiveness without contrition. And at this point, we have had zero contrition. Um, and then the question really, so I think that's, but you know, these are all go into my sort of accountability bucket. The, the issue about what do we, how do we rally the troops, given how divided we are now to actually put people's minds to how do we fix hundreds of millions of people took these vac- these shots. I can't even call them vaccines. Hundreds of millions of people are in the ongoing experiment, because that's what it is, of these mRNA injections. They aren't FDA approved. We don't have a lick of long-term data about them. And we are seeing you know, a mounting evidence of severe adverse events. How do we find, number one, get them to pull these things from the market at a time when you know, Kathy Hochul's saying that you know, she still won't let healthcare workers back to work if they're unvaccinated? And the amount of ignorance is is stunning. But how do we Mm -hmm. get them pulled? And how do we actually redeploy resources, every resource, medical resource, to say, 
how can we help all of these people who are facing potentially some pretty significant downstream you know, medical issues? You know, I hate to say it, but the damage is done. It's so sad to say that, but but what's happened has happened, and it's it's terrible. It's terrible. Scott Adams uh, said this the other day on Twitter. I don't know if you noticed, but he said he said, "Look, you know, <laughs> I like him because even though he mischaracterized our position, he said we were right because of a coin toss and said several other insulting mm-hmm. things. Nonetheless, he, yes." Uh, he was willing to be held to account for, for and it's taken him several days. And it, actually, each day he gets better at it. I don't know. Is there some sort of thing that goes in a person's mind yes. once you realize you're wrong? Yes. Is it? He, 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 yes. No, no, no. He's, he is. Well, no, no. He is. He is up to something, and he's he is trying to get people a persuasion move where he brings people into realizing that you'll see. I, I see what he's doing. Him well. Well, okay, <laughs> well, well, what did he say? I, well, well, I, I was glad he, was he said like, that those of us who aren't vaccinated yeah. are the winners. Uh, but I was a little bit offended that, as you said, Jeffrey, he suggested that you know he's very right. smart and he used his advanced analytics, and for some reason they it, led him astray. While I was just sort of a knee-jerk, distrustful of no, the no, no. government, yeah. and, and therefore I that's just a chose move. right this time. That that's what well, that's I a persuasion move to get people. It's a persuasion to make people realize that you were right. That that's it. You were right. (laughs) That's where we're going to end up after all the craziness stuff. Correct uh, uh, about this, Doctor. But you know, uh, he did say something that I found terrifying. He said he has to live with the rest of his life knowing he took these shots that he didn't really need, and he doesn't understand this experimental technology. What is this going to mean for him in uh, three years, five years, ten years? That that's true. Is a terrifying thought, and I can just tell you, being on this end of brownstone. I by the way. I never wanted to get into this vaccine area. It's not my area. I have no training in it whatsoever. I don't like it. It's too controversial. I'd rather just focus on lockdowns and masks, right? But there's no <laughs> avoiding it. Yep. Uh, so we got into the, and you follow Brown, so you know what we got. And so I've had to do this just because uh, the, the, the adverse effects are just so overwhelming and it's part of public health. So yes, I'm addressing it, but I get floods of emails every day. Like, how do I get unvaccinated? What can right. you give me? What treatment can you, it's like, that's not, I, I don't, I can't do this. You know, this is not what I do, but it's tragic. Yeah. It's yes. deeply, deeply yeah. tragic. I don't think and, we can undo the damage, but you know, the question, my, so I think we need the healing. We need the honest, honesty, and we need the humility. Okay. That's step one. Let's get there. Then the question is how do we prevent this from happening again? And I'm afraid right. at this point, it's not about getting some new president who's going to get the right appointees to into uh, HHS, CDC, and NIH. That is not going to work. They'll be chewed up alive like on the spot in the first hour of their job. Mm-hmm. We cannot do that. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. dramatic reform. NIH, NIH needs to be devolved to six six different regional areas or whatever, and they need to go back to doing what they're supposed to do, which is, which is funding research that the vaccine company is not willing to pay for because there's no profit in it, right? So therapeutics yeah. and serious medical research. So let's get back to that. That's what public health is supposed to be about. CDC, I don't know what to say. I mean, is there any hope for it? I think it's been permanently discredited, right? So I, if, if we get yeah. somebody with a clear head in office and a, and a clear-headed Congress, and this shouldn't be a political show, but I, I don't see any purpose for it whatsoever. Look, look at, at what point are we just going to say, let's unplug this beast 
and start over again with uh, good public health principles. I think that's that's essential. I also think we need to revisit f- fundamental things like the 1944 Public Health Services Act that gives the federal government the right. quarantine powers. Now, I know, Dr. Drew, you've probably got a lot of good ideas on how to use the quarantine power under various conditions. If this happens, this happens, this happens. So the point is, this power has been massively abused. Yes. And under those conditions, uh, I just think we just need to take it away. We just need to get rid of the quarantine power, like forever. They should not have this right. They've abused this uh, privilege that they were granted under this weird 1944 Act, conditions of, of a passage of which I do not understand. But let's just get rid of it. I mean, the, the government has abused this power. We've learned that individuals and their doctors and medical professionals working with actual patients uh, based on their own knowledge and experience could do a much better job of mitigating uh, diseases and pandemics and, and dealing with infectious disease than these centralized health officials to say nothing of national security officials that somehow yes. got, got hold of uh, the process mm-hmm. this, this time. So let us learn to have truth have honesty, let's have humility and the courage to admit error, and then reform the system in a way that's consistent with human rights, compassion, uh, good science, and good therapeutics and good doctor-patient relationships. That's, you know, that's to me, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a, a small program, but it's, it's the essential program. If we can't do that, we're just toast. No, I, I think it's critical. One of my greatest concerns, truly, as someone with a uh, long background in public health, is what is going to happen the next time, because there will be a next thing. It may not be a next pandemic. It may not be a viral outbreak, but there will be something at which time we need people uh, around the globe to heed our call to arms, whatever it is, and to pay attention. And at this point, the average person thinks, y'all are a bunch of rubes. I'm not paying attention to anything you say. You are 100% wrong. You let us all down a path of you know, suffering and destruction. Uh, and so I think we have undermined the public's trust and confidence, not only in vaccines, but in public health in general. And it's going to take a long, long time to regain that. Um, so I think blowing up some institutions uh, like the CDC is really going to be critical uh, to regaining that trust. Unfortunately, one of the another thing I do want to ask you about, just because I think you've got such great insights, there are some things that we are have now become inculcated to our entire uh, you know society that I, that I fear are never going away. For example, I've predicted I don't think you are ever walking into your dentist's office or your doctor's office again without people wearing masks. I think that's become. You know, I I don't think you're going to ever get on an airplane when some flight attendant isn't going to hand you an alcohol swab. Uh, And I think that Mm. things that went away, some of the niceties. I like that. (laughs) No, some of the niceties, you know, like like cloth napkins or actually having a ketchup bottle on the table as opposed to some nasty little, you know, disposable paper thing. Our quality of life, I guess, is what I'm saying. You still can't get a lime in your in your vodka soda, Kelly. You still can't yeah, get a lime in your vodka soda. And I'm not sure that's ever <laughs> yeah, coming uh, back. Some of the stuff. What is this vodka soda issue in the lime? You mean at at on on, on airplanes? In or, a plane. Or yeah, because there's yeah. some. Airplanes. Some, it spreads COVID, I guess. I have no idea. That was something that they got rid of during COVID. And that's what well, it's they a say. Problem. COVID is the excuse. Right, right, right. So right. In, 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 in after the 1918 uh, pandemic, um, 
which happened for a variety of reasons, no reason to talk about it here, but there were basically 10 years of disease panic that followed, right? Everybody got mm -hmm. freaked out about germs. Everything is infectious. Everything is disaster. I'm surrounded by people who are trying to degrade my immune system, you know, and degrade my health and kill me. And that prepared the way for, uh, basically for eugenics programs to become very popular in the United States. That was a fallout from the disease panic of, of 1918. God willing, we'll avoid that. I don't know. But, you know, even as late as 1929, when we had the parrot flu scare, we were still freaked out. And then all sorts of governments up and down the East Coast uh, ordered the slaughter of parrots in people's homes because they were afraid they were spreading disease. So these kinds of disease panics are a disaster for civilization and for our social functioning and for our rationality and for good treatment of medicine. That is why the New York Times, a good public health for a century following 1918, systematically avoided these kinds of public panics and these scaremongering tactics because they know that, that people just lose their minds and they stay with lost minds for like a decade after. And that's why in 57, 58, the New York Times said, calm down, if you get sick, see your doctor, otherwise we're going to get we're going to get good therapeutics and vaccines and it'll go away. Said the same thing in 68, 69. Don't cancel anything. If you get sick, stay home in bed. If, you know, if it gets bad, go see your doctor. That's the way they handle pandemics in the old days. And, <laughs> and, uh, and H1N1 in 2009, you know, uh, people went right. to Obama and said, oh, here comes a terrible disease. We better lock down. And he said, look, guys, it, I just don't have any time for this. We're in the middle of a financial crisis. Go, go find somebody else to bother. Right? Right, right. That was the right. I, I loved the him. Right yeah. Well, you know, we have an and, entire and so, generation yeah. of kids now. We've got an entire generation of young people who have an inherent fear of others. Who who I have? Are, you go to the grocery store and they're swabbing the handle of the grocery cart with you know antiseptics and wearing you know masks. And I I travel every week, and it's the young families. It's the, you know, people in their twenties and thirties with little toddlers wearing masks and kids, you know, mommy saying, you know, stay away from those people. Um, God help us yeah. uh, as a society really, because I don't, that's right. I, and, we don't and know. Second and, third, and second and third grade, we used to play cooties on the, on the, on the playground. <laughs> right. And, and, and that, uh, and, and, and every society has its version of that. Right. Okay. But that's mm -hmm. what you do when you're, when you're eight and nine years old. Okay, but right. it's presumably right. we graduate from that. We do things like read uh, cell biology for dummies, uh, you know, <laughs> and we take right. biology, cell biology in ninth grade, or hopefully we pay attention. Uh, we didn't, apparently. But uh, we have played a giant game of cooties throughout the whole of mm -hmm. the world, with the exception of like five nations. And that's going to be right. stuck with us. Uh, and it's, it's no. childish. It's dangerous. It's pathological, and and it's contrary to the science that we earned and learned over a hundred years. We've got to reverse this. We need some good education. Thank you for your show, by the way. Uh, uh, but we need to have a much bigger audience. We've got a lot of damage to re to repair yes. and get people back Susan, to yes. an understanding yes, that my mother audience. had. Her, my mother understood this. Uh, her mother before her understood this. Her mother before her understood this. She knew that in April I was going to go see my mother in Texas and said, I said, Mom, I'm not sure I should uh, come because I might give you COVID. She said, well, there's a couple things about that. One is, if you give me COVID and I die, uh, that is the fault of the germ, not yours. I love you, son. Come see me. 
So God bless That's you, Mom. That's sweet. I love your mother. That's awesome. <laughs> Can I interject something that really pisses me off? Okay, I'm just going to say it. Okay, this should be good. I love you because you're a journalist and you're doing something that is really right for the for the country. When we saw your article, we said, we got to get this guy. If we could just take all the real like pro-COVID vaccine people out of journalism, we'd probably get a bigger audience. I feel I feel like we're we were really fighting against the media during this whole pandemic too. The sure. stuff that they were putting out was scaring the shit out of everybody. Every day we remember when they had those killer hornets in Seattle, they were like trying to scare everybody. Every day we could just find silly stuff and I don't know where it was coming from. Some of it was the Washington Post, but and Susan, as you know, if I see the word grim or staggering again, I'm going to vomit. Right. And I think now we need to, the only way we're going to get the word out to the general public, not just the people that watch us and, you know, or people, a lot of people in this world are in this country are, are not able to watch YouTube all day. They're at work and they're, they go home to their family and they feed their family and, you know, they don't, they don't even know who Dr. Drew is, you know, and. There needs to, needs really, to be I, let I, out I, I to really a bigger audience. I, I blame the New York Times uh, first and foremost because they started all this nonsense on February 27th, that stupid podcast with Donald G. McNeil. And then, then they followed up mm. the next day with their article, you know, going medieval on the virus and so on. So the New York Times embarrassed. Also, the New York Times had a great, beautiful history in public health. For the previous 100 years, they did mm -hmm. a res respectable job during the parrots flu of 1929, where they said, stop slaughtering parrots. During the polio epidemics from 1940 to 1943, <clears throat> they were fantastic throughout that. They urged uh, 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 rationality and no closures, no public panic. They were great in 57, 58, 68, 69. They've been, during SARS-CoV-1, even uh, 2002, 2003, right. they were great. Right. I mean, this is a... This has been everything. They've been responsible on every issue, but on public health, they've been very responsible for 100 years. They threw it all away. For yeah. what and why? And, and they stayed with it. Today, my friends, today, they have run an op-ed uh, by an author who regrets the fact that uh, China got rid of its zero COVID policies. That's what he says. He said the CCP protected its people for three years, and now they've oh, thrown Lord. it all away. Right, opening it up. This is what the New York Times today says. What are we going to do about Terror. that? Well, I will say I sent your article out to everybody I know, uh, Jeffrey, because I thought it was a, I, I know I can encourage people to read that book, uh, Deborah Burks's book, because it gives such great insight. But knowing that people won't, I figured if you're going to read something, read Jeffrey A. Tucker's review of it because it was so well written. And I, I agree with Susan. Um, I thank you for doing it and for being outspoken. Uh, you were on the front line since very, very early on in this debacle. Um, and I know you took the slings and arrows. I know I did uh, and certainly have had uh, was kicked off social media, was off Twitter for more than a year. I just got back on. Have had multiple threats against my medical license, uh, and continue to to say that I would I would not do any of it any differently. Um, I hope that you feel the same. I hope that you rest well at night, oh. knowing that you will end up squarely no. on the right side of history. Yeah. 
I, I'm happy. I, you know, I, I, I was very much involved in, in the, the Great Barrington Declaration, you know, from, from the very outset yes. of that whole thing and the release and the promotion of that thing. And that, my, my whole life fell apart after that. It's true. It's true. But whatever. You know, why are we here? Yeah. Uh, we're here to tell I, the truth uh, 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 as best we say, especially when nobody else is willing to do it. That's when you're called to speak out when everybody else goes silent. So what's your well, life? I, as you know, as Drew knows, I have, quote, I, I have quoted John Milton many, many times during this, that a virtue untested is no virtue at all. And uh, I, you can, you can live by that as well, because you certainly have been, you, you, you had a lot to lose and uh, it's, it's when you have a lot to lose and you do it anyway, because it's the right thing to do. So I appreciate uh, you and thank you for being here with us uh, for this. I know that. Uh, and and please feedback. use us as, as, as an outlet. If you have something that's uh, outraging you, please uh, join us oh, well, to talk well, about it. We'd love I, to. I, I'm glad to come back anytime, but, but my friends, I know that sometimes people are exhausted with this topic and, and that sort of thing and understandably. So and we're also exhausted of the things we're learning. You know, the truth is grimmer than we even, uh, <laughs> To use your wow. favorite word, grim. Uh, <laughs> my, my word, by the way, is my, 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 my word is unprecedented. I said I've used the word unprecedented yeah. more in the past three years than I did in the preceding fifty. So well, I, <laughs> unprecedented. I think, I think yeah. in, in many ways, our, our, we have so much, so much work to do. There's so much things that have to be undone, and so many things that have to be rebuilt. I named uh, the the institute Brownstone because because my mother uh, once again my mother observed that in the early part of the 19th century the way we built up this great country uh, was through the use of this this great rock called the brownstone which is malleable and it was not expensive and it's very durable and it's what built all the great buildings throughout the 19th century before the age of mm. steel made it so much easier and she said to me that day she said we have to rebuild we have to rebuild this country we have to rebuild public health we have to rebuild everything after this disaster so brownstone's the right name right. because that's that's how we built and we're going to have to rebuild and that's where we are today so we can't what, we can't, what is your mother's name god bless her jan tucker janice tucker we we need some sort of uh janice tucker call to action you know what i mean some sort of I, I something yes. we'll we'll see if we can get uh, Janice Tucker as as our as our figurehead. Let, let me just I just want to point out a couple of things just since we've surveyed this scene. I feel like there's some stuff I just want to throw in if people say are watching this uh, recording later. Uh, we've talked about the need to reduce EDC, redo public health. A couple of things on the public health side. It is almost exclusively populated by pediatricians because much of the public health policy on the state level is around vaccine. And pediatricians, lo and behold, I have found during this pandemic, are not trained or equipped to handle adult medicine, particularly infectious disease. Their decision-making was off, their judgment was wrong, the things they worried about, we wouldn't worry about in adult medicine. And it was really just a the wrong training for this particular, for adult disorders, number one. Number two, there are non-clinicians throughout the public health world, which is 
must end. It must end. That is disgusting. They are not the people making decisions about clinical medicine. It must end. That must go. And uh, then just a quick, quick, two quick things, a couple quick things. I had H1N1 and it was horrible. It was worse than a bad COVID. And it was, I was 10 years younger and it was horrible. We might remember that one killed 300,000 people. And the people of the United States did not even know it happened. So we went from one that was horrible that killed 300,000 to one that was horrible, equally horrible, killed a million plus. One we shut the world down for, the other you didn't even know happened. Maybe there is a middle ground in, in the world of public health that we can sort of strike. And then finally, as it pertains to the kids, I always point this story out because it's so vivid to me about how we forsaked children that were so severely forsaken when the ukrainian moms were passing the border with their kids into poland there were microphones and cameras thrown in their faces and i watched those interviews and to a person these women said it's horrible we had to leave our men our sons our, our husband we'd left behind to fight it's awful we have the guests we have the kids with us but more than anything else these kids have been out of school for two weeks. Two weeks. We have to get them back in school. It's been two weeks. And they put them into Polish-speaking schools because two weeks out of school was in insanity. And yet we left them out for two years. So that, that will stay with me forever. Uh, Dr. Drew, uh, if you wouldn't mind, on your second point, do you mean by that that we have too many, uh, on your point about clinicians, do you mean to say that we have too many academics uh, uh, no. Well, the, for instance, in the LA, LA County, the, yeah. not not physicians, not have right. zero clinical experience. Sociologists, social workers, our, our, you know, non doctor, clinicians. They're doctors like yeah. Jill yeah. Biden's a doctor. Okay, uh, you know, right. it's, you know, you've got Doctor Barbara Ferrer uh, in LA County, who who is a social scientist. I mean, these are people who have you know the ability to to you know. I don't even know what, but uh, certainly not make decisions about public health uh, guidance, you know, and they're at the helm all over it's the country. Terrible. Um, it's terrible. It is really, disgusting. It's really so, a problem. Public health uh, is, uh, to, to be an official, to be a policymaker in public health, you think, requires some experience in dealing with, with patients uh, and, and you would therapeutics hope. and I yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is a very yeah. interesting principle. And, 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 and if you go back in time, you remember the people who inspired the lockdowns were, were not, they didn't have patients. They never seen patients that are in the clinics. There are people like Neil Ferguson at the Imperial right. College, you know, with his, yes. pulling his models around and running his well, numbers we, and saying, because you know, the only way you, the, the only way you're running numbers and dealing with his girlfriend down the street. Yeah. Well, yeah, the only way you're going to ever understand the potential <laughs> impact of something like you don't, it's a clinician who understands that children, when they get diagnosed with or referred for hearing or vision problems, it's because the teachers are the ones who refer those. Those rarely come from a parent. Um, it, it's, it's clinicians who understand what's going to happen when people miss their screening colonoscopy, their screening mammogram, their, you know, follow up on their diabetes. It's clinicians who understand the impact of these sorts of things, of, of missing these appointments, of missing and, routine dental and exams Kelly, and what's going to it happen. Is us clinicians, clinicians that what is hammered into our head is do no harm. And a sociologist right. has 
zero of such training, and zero risk-reward decision-making, which is at the core of what we do. No, I, I agree. And the the idea of, uh, you know, again, this therapeutic nihilism, these are things that that uh, social scientists and these administrators have no idea about. And and, and I, I'm not even giving Anthony Fauci a pass. The last time Anthony Fauci saw patients was 54 years ago. The CAT scan hadn't been invented <laughs> yet. So I'm not sure he knows which end of the stethoscope to put in his ear. Um, but, well, but, uh, but you, you know, all your comments are premised on the idea that public health is about people. And yes. I'm not sure the people who are running public health today really get that. They think it's about mm. systems and about models yes. and about, uh, and about, yeah. about control as if we're all lab rats, not even lab rats. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're what do they call it in, in uh, computer code, like uh, non-playing characters or something? I mean, they're, they're yes, really NPCs. Real. NPCs. Well, they have, right? We're all well, they have become... The, the, the public health, and we've talked about this quite a bit, um, I can say because I did my postgraduate training uh, in at uh, Harvard School of Public Health, and I can tell you they have become social justice warriors. It really has very little to do, as you said, about, uh, pub about public health, and it's more about equity and systems and making sure things that really have nothing to do with public health. Because if you leave sort of the risk-benefit calculation behind, which they did, if you act as if everyone is at equivalent risk, there is no equality when it comes to a disease, to, you know, viruses don't need to be, be equitable. There, there's no requirement that a virus is equitable, regardless of whether or not you find that a, you know, a, a nice public health construct. It doesn't happen. So they have become, as you said, much more interested in systems uh, and in things that uh, have nothing to do with really what's to benefit the public. Please write about that. That's your next article. And, uh, my, my friends, uh, I still can't quite shake off the, the horrifying reality that in the name of public health, we have ruined public health in this country. Like Correct. utterly wrecked. We are, we are facing Correct. an unprecedented crisis. Three years ago, I could walk through the streets of Manhattan and not be uh, uh, enveloped by, by, uh, by uh, just bellows of, of, of marijuana smoke everywhere. I'm right. sorry to sound old fashioned, but this is, this is yeah. outrageous. Uh, it, yeah. you know, the, uh, and not to mention the opioid uh, epidemic and, and, and the, you know, the, 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 as everybody calls it, the COVID-19, the weight gain during the lockdowns was just, you know, right. unbelievable. And, and just the loss of, of concern, uh, the closure of the, of the gyms. Uh, the non-emphasis on 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 health and sunshine and exercise, I mean, and and the shutdown of the medical system. Do you know? Uh, and my training is in economics and not in, in medicine or health or, or other forms of science. But but if you look at the data about public health spending, how much people spent on 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 their own medical care during the pandemic, it crashed down like thirty percent. Correct. You know. What, what are we doing? So historians are going to look back at, oh, a pandemic? Well, how come the hospitals were underused? How come healthcare spending plummeted during a pandemic? So you, what was going on with these people? You really, you know? you really I mean, couldn't have come up with, you really couldn't have come up with 
a way to harm health more than you did. You told people stay indoors, close the gyms, do not gather with friends and family. Don't go to church. Okay. Don't get screening exams. Don't go to school and further your education. Sit on the sofa, close the window and doors. And close and stay indoors. I mean, you couldn't really have come up with a formula to be more harmful overall to someone's to the functioning of their immune system and, and for COVID specifically. Exactly, that's yeah. what I mean. For COVID specifically, there's a reason why during the tuberculosis, uh, you know, outbreaks, they put people on the roofs of the hospital and they they let them outdoors. They you know they put them outside, not inside. You know, we, we have a long history. People acted as if we've all of a sudden forgotten all of that. You know, I preach people all the time, you know, healthy diet, regular exercise, stress mitigation, everything that we didn't let them do, okay? Uh, Social isolation is probably one of the most devastating things you can do to the immune system. Unbelievable. And and not to mention mention psychological torment, right? I mean, I had one thing. His whole social circle, his entire social circle was connected with his AA group, right? The lockdowns came. He couldn't. And not only was it preventing him from returning to to the bottle uh, and among other terrible things that he used to do, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was his entire life. So suddenly the lockdowns came. He He was isolated. And the only thing that was open in town were, were the liquor stores and the, the pot shops. Stores. So guess right. what? And so, yeah, of course. Oh, so God. guess what? I asked, by That's the right. way, a public health official in Massachusetts said, if this is a public health crisis, if you're dealing with public health, why are all the liquor stores open? And right. they, yeah. they said to me, listen, if we, didn't, if we shut the liquor stores, it would be like a revolution in this country. Well, okay. <laughs> well, the liquor stores made more money than ever during that period, right. during the lockdown period. And right. and and right. I, if you you can go look at the data yourself, I mean the, the sales are through the roof, uh, and right. so it was it was a, a public health disaster. So the public health establishment created the biggest public health crisis of our yes. lifetimes. We've reversed whatever progress right. we we're making uh, since World yep. War II has been completely reversed. The the uh, life expectancy is on the decline, one, two, and three years. Right. As a result, right. not because of people dying from COVID, from the fallout from from the from the lockdowns, yes. from the calamity they created. You know, I'm sorry you're getting me whipped up here, but uh, uh, again, uh, there will not be justice. <laughs> but at least we need some admission of wrongdoing, some humility, and the courage to say we are wrong, and let's let's go about fixing it through whatever ways we can, through old-fashioned traditional public health principles, all of which we need to recover. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here, Jeffrey. And as I, as I said, you, you are welcome uh, to, you know, uh, join us whenever there's something that gets, uh, comes across your desk. We'd love to discuss it further. So we appreciate so much, it very much. All the best. Our pleasure. Coming Thanks, up, uh, Kelly, you want to talk about Dr. Richard Urso tomorrow? Yes, we have Richard Urso, who's uh, an ophthalmologist down in Texas and also the founder of the Global COVID Summit. Uh, He's been on the front lines uh, with me speaking out about this uh, fiasco from the really the very beginning. Uh, and he'll be a great guest. Um, he's got lots to talk about, including uh, the vaccines and lipid nanoparticles and those sorts of things. Uh, and then I know I've got uh, Dr. Ryan Cole back by 
you know, popular demand for Next Dr. Week. Ryan Cole yep. part two. He's on Feb. Yeah. The following Wednesday, the first, um, and then, uh, Senator Ron Johnson coming the next week, really excited to have him. He's been just incredibly outspoken, a huge supporter um, of the work we've been doing from the very beginning of the pandemic. He's one of the few in Washington who's really gone to the mat for us. So we've got some great, and then and we've then, got a couple of terrific and then researchers. Dr. Rose. Dr. Jessica Rose coming on the 15th of February. She's got great data uh, to share. She's a, just a brilliant analyst um, and has a lot of data to share on everything from just the the COVID pandemic in general, and then also obviously with regard to the vaccines. Great. And then we have uh, Brooke Jackson, who is a whistleblower, uh, was working with Batavia, which was the company uh, tasked with overseeing Pfizer's COVID vaccine trials. And she is the person who actually uh, saw these irregularities in the trials, went to the FDA to report them, and she was fired within a matter of hours. Uh, and she has a lot to say about what went on during the vaccine trials. Interesting All right, stuff. So for the up. next month, we've got a, a lot lined up for you, but we'll see everyone tomorrow. We're going to be a little bit later tomorrow. Tomorrow's four o'clock Pacific yes, instead of three o'clock. Uh, yes. So make note that. What's that, Susan? What's going on? Never mind. You screamed out, oh, and then said no. <laughs> All right, so 4 o'clock tomorrow. Uh, we do not have a show on Thursday and Friday. I accidentally said today's show was at 4 o'clock, but it obviously was at 3 o'clock. And if uh, I misled any of you, please go watch and watch the first with, with uh, uh, Jeffrey. It was amazing. Uh, and then it'll be back to usual schedule next week. So, Kelly, as always, thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow at 4 o'clock. Sounds great. See you tomorrow. Thanks. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Yeah.